Thank you for the wonderful lunch and the fellowship. Uh, Years ago, our church had the traditional morning service, evening service, and because our membership is so regional, we changed to a morning service, lunchtime, and an afternoon service. And they both have their advantages and disadvantages, but I really enjoy the lunchtime fellowship in between our services. Um, it's, it's such a blessing, and I would encourage you to not, um, not fail to see its value. It, it seems so ordinary, and it is, but so many ordinary things are beautiful and wonderful, like the ordinary means of grace, coming to church, singing, reading, preaching, it, it, the sacraments. They look so n- normal and ordinary, but... The pool of Siloam looked that way too. It's just water. But when God stirs it, it's not just water. So also fellowship and the means of grace look like just water. But when God stirs them, uh, they heal us and they, they feed us and they build us up. So prize those things and value them and persist in them. I'd like you to please turn with me to Psalm 131. Our sermon this afternoon comes from the very next psalm, Psalm 131. And maybe you've had this experience before where you're reading through the scriptures and you come across a passage and you think to yourself, I'm sure I've read this or heard this before, but I don't remember this. How could I, how could I have missed this? Uh, and that, this was my experience some years ago with Psalm 131. As I was reading through the scriptures and I read Psalm 131, it's, it's small. It's just a few verses. It's just three verses. And somehow I had no recollection of ever hearing or reading this psalm before in my life. And from that point till now, it's been a very precious psalm uh, for my own heart. And I have it painted on the wall in my office as a constant reminder uh, and as a medicine to my own soul. So Psalm 131 uh, will continue to teach us from God's word, and it's a psalm that's so short that you can easily memorize it and have it in your pocket, so to speak, or at your fingertips uh, for your own heart anytime, anywhere. So I would encourage you to memorize it. Psalm 131, this is the word of God. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth, and forevermore. Similar to this morning, our outline has three simple points. Three simple points. And the first of those is that we see first what David did not do. This is a psalm of David. And in verse 1, we see what David did not do. Do Notice that in verse 1 there are four negations or, or four denials, four things that David did not do. David tells us that he did not lift up his heart and that he did not raise his eyes too high. Think about that with me. David did not lift up his heart 
or raise his eyes too high. These are both, uh, they're different ways of expressing one's pride. There's an outward pride and an inward pride. So David begins with an inward pride. He did not lift up his heart. The King James would say, O Lord, my heart is not haughty. And in these newer translations, uh, David says, I did not lift up my heart. To lift up your heart is to be proud inwardly, to think of yourself as great, to think of yourself as as big or in in a large way. You yourself are lifted up in your own heart. It is inward. You're wise in your own in your own eyes. And David is saying, I didn't I didn't do that. I didn't think of myself as the greatest and most important. I did not overinflate or puff up my self-perception and self-identity. His heart is not lifted up. And David says he also did not raise his eyes too high, which is an outward expression of pride. You know what they say, maintain eye contact and assert dominance, you know. Or that when you're dealing with animals, they'll say don't lock eyes with them because they view that as a challenge. If you're in the military and you know you're in a line and the drill instructor is coming by, you don't want to just lock eyes with him and stare at him. That would be regarded as a, a, an expression of pride and a challenge, perhaps. Uh, similarly, a child, I'm sure your children are never this way, but a child that is defiant to their parents will oftentimes look directly at you and, and say what they want to say and then regret it afterwards. But the point is, what does it mean to lift up your to raise your eyes? It's to assert outwardly what your heart feels inwardly. So if your heart is lifted up inside of you, your eyes will be lifted up outside of you. Someone whose eyes are lifted up wants answers. You explain to me. Tell me. I'm commanding you. You do as I say. My eyes are lifted up. I'm commanding the room or I'm commanding the person. I'm I'm commanding the people around me. It's an expression of authority and an expression of Pride. So David says, I did not have a haughty heart. I did not lift up my heart, nor my eyes. I did not lift up my eyes. I also like the older translation that says, I have no proud looks. (laughs) I have no proud looks. My heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. So David is saying that his disposition is a humble one, inwardly and outwardly. There's two more things that he says he didn't do. What did David not do in verse 1? Thirdly, he says that he did not occupy himself with things too great for him or things too marvelous for him. He didn't occupy himself. The the word here means to to walk around. Uh, If you ever get the opportunity, I would strongly encourage you to visit the Huntington Library and Gardens in San Marino. They're beautiful. Right now, all the roses are blooming. It's just a wonderful place. They have a desert garden. They have a tropical garden. They have a subtropical garden. They have a rose garden. They have an herb garden, a Japanese garden, a Chinese garden, and an Australian garden, and libraries, and etc. <laughs> and if you call in the next 30 minutes, no. <laughs> I love the Huntington Garden, and one thing I do there, or basically the only thing I do there, is I occupy myself. I walk around and I look at every last little thing that I possibly can until my, I'm so overwhelmed and overstimulated that I can't remember anything. But it's beautiful. That's why I occupy myself. And David is saying that there are things too great for him 
and too marvelous for him. And he says, I did not occupy myself walking through and, and dealing with, or not dealing with, but I didn't, I didn't put my mind onto every last little detail of every last little thing that's going on around me. And when he says things too great and things too marvelous, it refers to different kinds of difficulty. Some things are difficult because of quantity, how much. Other things are difficult because of quality, what kind. So, for example, you could have a math exam, woe is me, a math exam, and it could have 1,000 simple math problems. That would be difficult not for each individual math problem, but for the quantity of them. I would say, this is too great for me. I can't do a thousand math problems. Then there could be a sheet of paper with one advanced math problem, and that would be too marvelous for me. It's too difficult because of quality. So when David says, I did not occupy myself with things too great, that would be difficult for quantity, or too marvelous, difficult for quality, He's saying, I did not spend my time or my mind stressing and distressing about every last little detail of every last little thing around me that's too great and too marvelous and beyond me. What did David not do? He did not have an inward pride. He did not have an outward pride. He did not challenge others, you answer me, you explain to me, you do as I say. Nor did he walk in or exercise himself or occupy himself with things too great and marvelous for him. If it's beyond his comprehension, if it's beyond him, he's not going to sit there trying to overcome it. If it's too big for him, if it's too great and too marvelous, he's not going to to stress himself about those things that are beyond his capacity. In verse 2, we see in the second place what David did do. First, what David did not do, that's verse 1. Second, what David did do, that's verse 2. And we might think to ourselves after the first verse, David, you're a clever man. If you don't worry about anything, you're never worried about anything. If you don't climb the tree, you don't have trouble getting down. If you don't jump in the pool, you don't have trouble getting out. If you don't get yourself into problems, you don't have to get out of problems. If you don't overcommit yourself, then you don't have to get out of those commitments. If you don't make a mess, you don't have to clean it up. David, you're smart. You don't occupy yourself with things too great, too marvelous. You live a stress-free life, David. And let me say, wait, David? King David? He did not live a life free from problems. He did not live a life where he just ignored the difficulties of his life. So verse 1 does not describe someone who just had a Pollyanna view of everything and and ignored reality. Rather, Psalm 131 describes someone who is very much in the middle of great problems and, and things that must be handled. As a king, you are responsible for a nation's well-being. Can you imagine, as parents, we we go through quite quite a lot of stress to make sure that we care for our families, as we should. A king, how how much more so? Because the the flow chart all comes back to you. David lived through the intricate complexities of royal life and national life and all of the stresses, both national and international, that go with it all throughout his life. 
So Psalm 131 doesn't describe a carefree person. Psalm 131 describes how someone made it through, how someone endured and passed through the difficulties and the trials and the complications of their life. So what did David do? Verse 2 tells us, it begins with a, a contrast, but rather, so bear with me as I hesitate a little bit longer, he would want to lift up his heart. He would want to raise up his eyes. He would want to occupy himself with everything too great and too marvelous for him, but he didn't do that. Rather, verse 2, he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. David calmed and quieted his soul. The word calmed here, it's not a, not a difficult meaning. It means to, to level something out, to bring it to balance, to, to smooth out its wrinkles, kind of like when we hold a baby to our chest and we rub its back. Or if you think about a, a gymnast on a balance beam and someone holds them to steady them, or a father with his son learning to ride the bike and the father puts his hand on the son or the bike and keeps him steady. David says, that's what I did to my soul. My soul wanted to do this and this and this and and all kinds of turmoil and turbulence, but I calmed and quieted my soul. He calmed it. He he restored it to balance. And he, he quieted it. There's different kinds of silence, different kinds of quiet. There's a silence of fear or power I've been to Cuba twice, and there's a a certain kind of silence there. You don't talk about certain things or say certain things so that you don't upset the government. You have to be very careful about what you say and to whom and where and when and all the rest. There's a certain kind of silence there that's based on power and authority and fear. There's another kind of silence that we're experiencing right now where I'm the only one talking and everyone else is, they're keeping quiet not because you fear me, but because there's a sort of, there's a teaching and taught relationship that we're going through right now. And so there's a sort of authority structure that's involved and people understand it's the time to listen. It's not fear, it's just, it's custom and it's, there is a certain measure of authority with pastors and and members in the teaching. We are being taught, let us listen. So there's a, a silence that comes from fear, I'm afraid to speak. There's a silence that comes from authority that says, it's not my time to speak. But there's also another kind of silence, and David tells us what it's like. He says, like a weaned child is my soul within me. There's a, there's a peace and a silence that comes from contentment and trust. It's a silence of, of balance and patience, confidence and understanding. Notice he, he mentions a weaned child, a weaned child. What's the difference between a nursing child and a weaned child. Putting aside, well, one is nursing, one's weaned, and then a weaned. More so, what's the difference between them relative or relevant for this illustration? The nursing child, when it's hungry, as often as it's hungry, as soon as it's hungry, what does it do? It cries. God made them to do that, and so that's what they do. It feels hunger, it cries. Babies are not thinking things through. They're not thinking, boy, I'm hungry. I should let mom and dad know 
No, they, they just feel hungry and they cry. And because they're not crying because they've reasoned to cry, and you can't reason them out of their crying. You can't say, baby, dinner will be <laughs> in 30 minutes, two hours, whatever. Baby, you can't reason with the baby. You can't tell it when feeding time will be. The best you can do is try to be consistent in your feeding schedule and hope that the baby adjusts to it. But the point is the baby's still going to cry for food because that's what babies do. And no matter how much you say, baby, please, <laughs> stop crying, go to sleep, they're going to cry. But a, a weaned child, a weaned child, what does it do? It, it waits for its food. It waits for its food, it knows, the weaned child knows that food will be given to it. The weaned child doesn't burst into a begging cry of survival. Babies cry because it's survival for them. The weaned child knows my life is not at risk in my own home. In fact, a child could think, hmm, my parents have fed me multiple times a day, every day of my entire life, I think they will feed me again today. They could reason that way. They don't always reason that way. Sometimes they act like nursing children. Mom, when's dinner? And all the rest. But a weaned child, you can at least reason with it. If they say, when's dinner? You can say, oh, it'll be at 5.30. Okay. And they wait for 5.30. The weaned child waits because it trusts its mother. The weaned child knows it will be fed. And so like a weaned child at his mother's side, I, I love my mother, I trust my mother, she feeds me. David says, this is what I did to my soul. I calmed it and I quieted my own soul, like a child that is weaned by its mother. And so our question at this point should be, how did David do this? Did David have an incredible amount of self-control and self-will to the point that he could sort of declare and dictate his state of mind? I am calm. I am quiet. And he just like magically moves himself. No, that's not what David did. But rather, verse 3 explains to us how it is that David managed not to do the things in verse 1, and how David managed to do the things that he did in verse 2. And we must follow his example because it is God's word and his command. So point number three is what we must do. We've seen what David did not do and what David did do. Verse 3 tells us what we must do. And the command is simple. O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. What is the command for us? To hope in the Lord. To trust in the Lord. To rest in the Lord. God had made promises to David. Remember, it's King David. Before he was king, God had made a promise to him that one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. You will, he will have an everlasting kingdom. And so David could remember the covenant promises of God, and in the midst of the national and international stresses that he faced, 
he could know God has made promises to me. God has covenanted with me that this throne is established and that one of my children will remain upon this throne forever. And so therefore, I need to humble my heart, I need to calm my heart and trust in the Lord and hope in the Lord because he has promised. The promises that God made to David in the, what we call the Davidic covenant stand behind David's trust in the Lord and David's call to Israel to trust in the Lord because if the, if the throne is sure and certain, then the nation is sure and certain. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. So the people can also trust in the stability of David's throne because the promise is as good to them as it is to David because David is their king. Their well-being depends on the king. David's kingship is sure and certain because of God's covenant promises to him. And so that means that God commands us through David to put our hope in the Lord. And this is important. Hope in the Lord, in nothing else. From this day forth and forevermore. Today, tomorrow, and every day forever. Now, as we said about Psalm 130, so with Psalm 131, we ought to read this in light of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because where did those promises of throne stability terminate? Not terminate as in come to an end and they are no more, but rather find their end and their fulfillment. In the son of David, Jesus Christ and his sure and certain throne and his kingdom that lasts forever. Where is Jesus seated? At the right hand of God, at the right hand of the majesty on high in heaven, he is enthroned. And the book of Hebrews says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but all things have been subjected to him. He has conquered He was incarnate, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended, he sat down, he rules and reigns with all things subdued. And so we also, when we say, but our enemies, but such difficulties and disasters around us, we need to look to the stability of the throne of David, which is to say we need to look to the stability of the throne of Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. And then we can calm and quiet our hearts and hope in the Lord. We have to hope in the Lord in and through Jesus Christ because that's how his promises come to us. Hope in the Lord's promises which are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Hope in the Lord's covenant promises because they are for you in Jesus Christ. When the disciples were on the sea and they said, Lord, we are perishing Jesus calmed the waves. And the disciples marveled. If there's something that we should occupy ourselves with, marveling at, it's the one who calmed the waves. If there's something we should exercise ourselves in, it is the majestic power of our God, Jesus Christ. We say, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus quiets. The wind and the sea obey him. We say, Lord, our sins are falling upon us. We are perishing. And Jesus says, I have 
removed your sins from you. As far as the east is from the west, Jesus says, read Psalm 130. (laughs) But what happens when we remember that the wind and the waves obey Jesus, or that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? We can calm and quiet our souls. Now, I want to conclude briefly with three points of application, but all three of these points are obstacles or or things that would hinder us from hoping in the Lord and calming and quieting ourselves. So these last three things will destroy everything we're trying to do in Psalm 131. First, if we refuse to humble ourselves, if we refuse to humble ourselves, You can't hope in the Lord while you refuse to humble your heart. If you lift up your heart in haughtiness and pride, if you raise up your eyes with defiance, if you contemplate the things that surpass you and meditate on what what only a creator can control, then you are provoking your soul instead of calming it. You're stirring it up instead of quieting it. And you shouldn't be surprised then when you fret and worry and stress and distress yourself because you've refused to humble yourself and you will have no peace. And we need to acknowledge that God permits affliction in our lives. Would you please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7? Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13 says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. And we'll stop the reading right there. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. What this means is, Here's here's how I want my life to go. Nice and straight. God says, by my wise permission and providence, your way is going to be crooked. crooked. There's now a crook, a bend in my lot, in my portion, in my life. And if I say, no, 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 no. My life goes this way. And God says, no, 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 no. Your life goes that way. Ecclesiastes 7 asks the question, who can make straight what he has made crooked? If you decide to fight this battle, I'm going to make straight what he has made crooked, will you succeed? Can you prevail? 
You cannot. You're fighting against God. But here's where pride and humility come into play. The proud heart and the proud eyes will say, God, my lot, my portion, my life should go this way, not that way. Explain to me, God, why it is you've allowed this crook, why you've permitted this crook in my lot. Tell me, explain to me. That's eyes lifted up and a haughty heart that thinks you deserve an answer. Explain this to me, God. I shouldn't have to deal with this. I shouldn't have to experience this. Why me? Why me? Why, God? Why? There's a famous poem by a Peruvian poet that says, Hay golpes en la vida tan fuertes yo no sé. There are are strikes in life so strong I don't understand. And then he says, they're like... They're like if the hand of God hits you on the back and you turn around and there's no one there. That's an, that's an unbeliever trying to wrestle with the, the calamities and distresses of life. There's, there are hard things in life I don't understand. It's like God hit me and I turned around and, he, and there's just no one there. For the Christian, we should have a very different perspective. When God allows a crook in our lot, a day of adversity, we're told to consider. And so... If you, do not, if you do what David did not do, if you do not humble your heart, but rather you lift up your heart and you raise your eyes in defiance and you shake your fist at God, God will say as he did to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Well, yes. No. The proud are angry and combative. And if we refuse to humble our hearts, we will not hope in the Lord. We cannot obey this command in Psalm 131, verse 3, if our hearts are haughty and our eyes are lofty. Secondly, the second thing that will get in the way that will hinder us from hoping in the Lord is if we expect what God has not promised. If we expect what God has not promised. The weaned child expects food three times a day, whatever however often a a given culture eats. The weaned child does not expect a new toy three times a day. Children, I'm sure you would love to receive a new toy or, or something new to play with three times a day. You shouldn't expect that, though, because no one has promised you that and no one is obligated to live to give you that. But if you live convinced that you deserve to have three Lego sets given to you a day, then you will live a life of great discontentment because you think you're being deprived of what you deserve to enjoy, which again comes from a a haughty heart. I deserve this. So as Christians, as believers, if we expect from God what he has never promised us, and then we challenge him for not giving it to us, we will not hope in the Lord because we'll be hoping for what he's never promised to give us. I'm hoping for my wife to have perfect health. God's never promised that to me. I'm hoping for my church to never have any problems. 
God's not promised that to me. I'm hoping for my house to never have any issues and to just be the perfect house till I die. God's never promised that to me. I am hoping for my marriage to be perfect and to never have any conflicts and struggles with my spouse or for my children to, to all be compliant and obedient and come to faith. God's not promised these things to us. I, I hope for my career to, to blossom and for my, for my retirement assets to flourish and this and that and the other thing. God's not promised that to me. So is he being mean to me or unfaithful if those things do not materialize? In James chapter 4, it says that God opposes the proud. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so that means that if the Lord has brought my portion low, I need to bring my heart low. And if I think that my portion should be way up high, stop expecting what God has not promised. He gives grace to the humble, and he will lift us up. But what is the lifting up that God promises to us? That's a promise. He will lift you up. What is the lifting up? Is it your 401k will be lifted up? Or your sick family member will be lifted up? Or is it your marriage will be lifted up? Or is it, no, it's not those things. What God has promised us is the forgiveness of our sins and the blessed resurrection of the body. His covenant with us is to remember our sins no more. He's promised us our portion, not here, but hereafter. And so, since my wife is a believer, he actually has promised to lift up my wife from her sickness, but not in this life. If I set my hopes and my expectations on a portion here and now, it will not. It may come to be. God God said in Ecclesiastes, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Thank God for it and enjoy it. There are days of prosperity. But in the day of adversity, consider. I expect with a trusting confidence that God will forgive my sins. I expect with a trusting confidence in God's promises that my soul will, will enter the presence of God because of the mighty mercy and merits of Jesus Christ. Because that's what he's promised to me. I expect that on that last day, my body will be raised up and a glorified soul and a glorified body will be united in glory forever with the Lord, enjoying that light and life that comes only from God. I expect that. And if I set my heart on that, will I be disappointed? Absolutely not we will say it's better than anything. It's better than I could have imagined. Paul says it's not entered into the heart of man, the mind of man, what we will be like. It's an incomparable weight of glory. But it's, it's, it's even better than you could hope. So as Peter says, set your hope fully. Hope fully. Hopefully. <laughs> but truly, Hope fully, because we will find God and his promises to be even better than the fullness of what we have understood and experienced in this life. God is faithful 
and his steadfast love endures forever. And all those who trust in him will not have their hopes dashed. Rather, if you could knock on the door of heaven a little early and ask the martyrs, was it worth it? They would, they would, they would give a holy laughter and say, brother, it's not even worth comparing. And if you could knock on the doors of hell, not early, but just for illustration's sake, and ask these people the, the wealth and the glory and the fame and the pleasure, was it worth it? They wouldn't be able to answer you for their screams of torment. If we expect what God has not promised, then we will not be like the child weaned of its mother. We'll be like the baby just crying, 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 crying. Give me more, give me more, give me more. So to review the first two of these last three points, if we refuse to humble our hearts, we will demand that God fix the crook in our lot. That will destroy our hope in the Lord. If we expect what God has not promised, then again, we will uh, not hope in the Lord because we're hoping for what he's never promised. And we'll say, the Lord hasn't given me these things. He would say, I never promised to give you those things. Thirdly and lastly, we will not hope in the Lord if our hope is in anything other than Jesus Christ. We've already said this, but it needs to be said again. If our hope is in anything or anyone other than our God, Jesus Christ. I use this illustration often because it's, it's from the scriptures and it's just the perfect illustration. Peter walked on water. He was in a boat and he walked on water out to the Lord. When did Peter start to sink? We're told it was when he took his eyes off the Lord and he thought about the wind and the waves. He began to say, that is a deep ocean <laughs> and those are big waves and it is dark out and what is, I'm, I'm walking on water. As soon as he began to contemplate the creatures and the creation, rather than the creator walking on the water in front of him, that's when he began to sink. Lord, save me. And so also, when we put our hope or our trust or our set our eyes on anything other than Jesus Christ, walking on that water or dying on that cross or raised from the dead or seated at the right hand of God, when we take our eyes off of him or move our hope away from him into anything else, we shouldn't be surprised that we sink. We say, what's happening? What's happening? Lord, save me. He says, don't contemplate the depth of the ocean. Don't contemplate the force of the wind. Don't contemplate the darkness. Don't contemplate the height of the waves. I made them all. And they obey me. If we contemplate those things, then we would be occupying ourselves with things too great and marvelous for us. I can't control the waves. I can't control the darkness. I can't control the wind. I can't control the depth of the sea. I can't control the properties of water that make me sink in it. Jesus says, but I can. O Israel, hope in the Lord now, henceforth, and forever. So Psalm 131 does not teach us this is how to live a carefree life and never have problems. No, it teaches us that the way out is the way through. And you need to humble your heart. You need to trust in what the Lord has promised and hope for it. In other words, wait patiently and confidently for it. And you will most certainly have everything that he has promised you. 
And so it moves us to faithfulness and to diligence, trusting in the Lord's promises, not living aloof from the cares of this life, but rather facing them, knowing that God is sovereign over all things. He makes the day of prosperity. He makes the day of adversity. And he is unto me, according to the scriptural metaphor, he is unto me like a mother, and I a child beside him. He is my heavenly father, and I am his child. He loves me, and he provides for me. He cares for me. He sent his son to die for me. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in moments like these, we feel sometimes so encouraged and so motivated, and yet when we walk away, as a little time passes, as the cares and concerns of this world creep up more and more, we become forgetful, and we become weak, and we take our eyes off of you and what you have promised us. And so we pray that you would help us to hide this word in our hearts, not only that we might not sin against you, but that we might serve you more faithfully. Help us to face those afflictions that you permit and to not demand that you relieve us. Although we do indeed pray, if it be your will, that you would remove the thorns from our sides, we nevertheless say, your will be done. Help us to trust in you. Help us to hope in you and nothing else and no one else now and forever. Help us to have a humble heart Help us to have lowered eyes. Help us to occupy ourselves in what has been revealed unto us and given unto us to do. Help us to trust you as a weaned child, knowing that you will provide all things necessary for us and knowing that all of this affliction that you permit is for our good. It all works together for our good and for your glory. Help us to remember this not only now, but as we go from here and throughout the week, that we might serve you and serve you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.